John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water in, because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell fire. This is the word of the Lord. We know there was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was drawing great crowds. All four Gospels tell us about that miracle of feeding 5,000 people at one time. The Bible teaches us that God loves all of his children the same, yet of all those who came to hear him and who followed him, Jesus felt closer to 12 than to the others. And we know that though he felt close to 12 he felt still closer to three of the twelve. The Gospels are very clear that when Jairus rushed up to Jesus in the street one day, this head of the synagogue at Capernaum, and said, My daughter is sick. She's dying. Come quickly. And Jesus started toward Jairus' house only to have a woman reach out and touch him because she'd been sick for 34 years. And he stopped and carried on a conversation with her, only to hear someone say, Ah, no need now. Your daughter's died. Jesus said, Come with me. He went on to the house of Jairus, and when he got there, he took three of the disciples into the room where this young girl lay dead, Peter, James, and John. Later, we're told in the Gospels that one day Jesus asked his disciples three of them, Peter, James, and John, to go up with him up onto a mountain. And while they were there, they saw transfigured before them Moses and Elijah and Jesus, all of them in sparkling white robes. We're told that on the night that he was betrayed, after celebrating Passover with his disciples, after they had sung a hymn and had a prayer, they went across the little Kidron ravine and up into an olive grove. There was an olive press there called Gethsemane. He asked his 12 close friends to pray for him, but he asked three to go a little farther into the grove with him, Peter, James, and John. Today's story is the only one in all of Mark's gospel where John and Jesus sort of get into it with each other John comes to Jesus thinking he's going to be very pleased with what John's about to tell him. I saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and I told him to stop. He was not in our group. And Jesus said, really? Somebody was getting healed, 
and you told the person to stop. If they're not against us, they're for us. It's easy for us to decide that we are the only righteous people around. We're the only ones trying to discern the will of God. Only ones standing on the side of what's right and good and true and beautiful, isn't it? But God is working in places that may not be our place, in the ways that are not most comfortable for us, not even most helpful to us. Are you familiar with the name Clyde Edgerton? He's a novelist. Uh, one of his novels was called Rainy. Another was called Walking Across Europe. And he has a new one called The Bible Salesman. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina and writes novels. He was recently interviewed about this latest one. It's a story of a man who sells Bibles and does it really well, who doesn't believe in the Bible. In the interview, Clyde Edgerton was asked, Is it true that you've gone back to church after not being in church for many years? He said, that's true. Why did you leave and why did you go back? And he said, my parents always took me when I was growing up. The part of the service I hated was the sermon because the preacher was too loud and always angry. Too loud and always angry. But now I'm married, and I have little children, and I remembered what was good. Hear me, musicians. What was good was the singing, he said. The songs were not too loud. The songs were not angry. And then he said, I remembered all of the adults who seemed to be a lot older than I was, who were so kind to me who treated me as if I were their favorite nephew, even though I was not blood kin to them. They were all like aunts and uncles and cousins to me. And somehow, even when I was a boy, I figured out they had seen a side of God that the preacher never had seen. They were not loud and angry. They were kind and thoughtful and helpful. And I wanted my children to grow up hearing the great, hymns of the faith, and I wanted them to meet aunts and uncles and cousins who would treat them wonderfully well. So you went back to church. Well, not to that church, he said. <laughs> we found a new church where the preacher is not too loud and is not always angry. Yet God is working, even in places where people do things differently from the way we do them. God is working. And we come to the places where we are fed, where we are helped, where we believe the book is taught the way God had in mind and where we worship the way we think God intended us to worship. Number two, be careful that you do not offend one of my little ones, he says, the word offend here in Greek is the word we have in scandal and scandalize. It's sometimes translated 
don't cause them to stumble or don't be a stumbling block is the way Paul's work is sometimes translated where he uses the very same word. And we may think this means only children, but scholars think it does not mean only children. That in fact, when Jesus uses little ones in other contexts, he's often talking about his own disciples. He means little ones in comparison to the great ones. The Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the Herods, the Tetrarchs, even the powerful Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The little ones were those who had no voice, no money, no defender. It could be adults who were outside most people's circles. Do not, do not offend one of them. Do not drive them from their faith. It is so important that you nurture them and help them know the good news is for them. Elizabeth Kelly has written, I've really messed up 42 years of my life. I've messed up 42 years. I was third little girl born into a family where the father beat up my mother, my father beat up my mother, where he drank too much, was mean and hateful. Finally, she got the courage to run him off, and then she decided she couldn't look after three little girls, couldn't support three little girls. She had heard about a group home in a town nearby. She loaded our few belongings in the trunk of a car and drove us over there, pulled up in front of this place, a house, told us to get out. And she took our clothes and stacked them right there on the end of the sidewalk, waved, and drove away. She did. I looked at my two older sisters. They went up to the door and rang the bell. An older man and woman came to the door, warm eyes. Oh, my, they said. What are your names? Please come in. They showed us to a bedroom. They told us what time supper would be ready. They gave us a place to bathe and pajamas, and we slept, and the next morning we could smell breakfast cooking. There were other children in this group home. We all got to the table, and the one they all called Graham and called him Grampy, she took out a little book she called Daily Light, sort of like our upper room, and she read a few verses from the Bible, and she read this little brief commentary, and he and she said a brief prayer, and we all ate. And they talked about going to school and coming home from school, getting homework done and getting ready for dinner. They were wonderful. They were wonderful. But by the time my sisters and I were teenagers, we were still remembering. Somebody put us out. Somebody abandoned us, and so we acted out. We became mean and hateful. And I ended up marrying a man just like my daddy. Same kind of man. 
I had two little girls. Finally, I had the courage to tell him to go away. And he did. And I couldn't find a job. I must have felt very much what my mother felt. And I got a phone call. A woman saying, Elizabeth, I heard that you were trying it on your own and you're having trouble finding a job. Guess what? A few years ago, Grampy died, and Graham has a bad heart. She's not so long from death and needs somebody to come and be her housekeeper and her cook. I thought you might want the job. I said, what about my girls? And this woman said, Graham said, she'll take all three. So I went over there. Most of the time she's in a wheelchair. Sometimes she could get around a little on a walker. She told me she'd save my bedroom. I went, looked just like it had years before. My girls, beds, clean pajamas. I fixed supper. The next morning I fixed breakfast. Got Graham to the table, and she said, we need to read Daily Light. And so we opened the Bible, and she read a few verses and a brief commentary, and we had a prayer, and then we ate. She was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Four months later, one morning, I went in to look on, out and see how she was doing. I could help her get ready for the breakfast I was about to prepare. And she had gotten out of bed during the night and into her favorite chair. And her head was slumped down on her chest. I felt her pulse. There was none. I called the authorities to come. But while we waited, I said to my little girls, we need to read Daily Light. And I opened the book. And I read, do not cause one of the little ones to stumble. Do not be scandalous to them. Love them. Embrace them. Help them. Keep them always. Number three, the strange thing. If your hand's causing you to do things you ought not to do. If it's reaching out for things you ought not to have, you might ought to cut it off. If your feet are leading you places you ought not go to do things you ought not do, you might ought to cut your foot off. If your eyes are looking at things you ought not to be looking at, tempting you to take things you ought not to take, it might be better to pluck out your eye. Because it's better to go with one hand, one foot, one eye into the kingdom of God than to end up on the Gehenna. That's what the word is in Greek, Gehenna. The word Gehenna comes from the Hebrew word Hinnom. It's a little valley on the west side of the old walled city of Jerusalem. On the east side you have the Kidron, beautiful little brook little bridge over it. You still could come out of the east gate of the old walled city and cross the little brook. Beautiful bougainvillea blooming there, olive trees, 
a Gethsemane. The west side of the city, the little ravine on the opposite side called Hinnom, King David discovered when he took this hill from the Jebusites to start a new capital city that they had been offering human sacrifice in that little valley. The Israelites weren't supposed to do that. But over the next 400, uh, 200 years, there were some who dabbled in human sacrifice in the valley of Hinnom. So that finally it was King Josiah in the 8th century who said, we're going to stop all of that forever in the valley of Hinnom. We're going to turn that little valley into the city dump. Dump all your refuse in there. We'll burn it up. And so for more than 700 years, by the time Jesus came, it had been the city dump. And so much had been dumped into the valley of Hinnom and set fire that the fire never went out. It became known as the hellfire. I've told you that my football coach, whom I love best of all my coaches, used to say to me, I want you to come out of there like a bat out of Hades. And I knew what he meant, sort of. I mean, I knew what he wanted me to do. But it was only when I was in seminary and taking Greek that I learned what the word Hades meant. It's not hot and fiery. It's damp and dark where bats live. And when the sun sets and night begins, the bats come firing out of there, this damp, dark place. The word Hades in Greek is like the word Sheol in Hebrew. It's damp and dark, a tomb where people get buried. This word Gehenna is a reference to the city dump. Jesus isn't really wanting people to cut off their hands and feet and pluck out their eyes. But what he's saying is you need to stay focused. Both hands and both feet and both eyes focused upon God and God's will and God's purposes. But it'd be better not to have them if you're going to end up so bad, such a bad person, that nobody will claim you and they'll just throw you on the jump pile down in the Valley of Hinnom. Dr. Carl Rahner, one of the great Roman Catholic theologians of the last century. Being German, first name is begun with a K, last name is R-A-H-N-E-R. When I was in seminary, one of my professors had just come back from Vatican II in Rome. He was invited there by the Pope to participate, one of the most knowledgeable Protestants in the world, in the great councils of, of Catholicism. And he came back talking about Dr. Karl Rahner, what a great mind and man and spirit that he was. Dr. Karl Rahner was born in Freiburg in 1904, became a Jesuit, Jesuit priest, and then seminary professor. He taught in the seminary at Munich and then on to Innsbruck. That's where he finally died, in Innsbruck, Austria. But one time when he was in Munich as professor... One of his students came up to him after class and said, Dr. Rahner, I'm, I'm losing my faith. I need a book. Tell me the name of a book so I can regain my faith. And one who overheard the conversation said, Dr. Rahner looked at him and said, Young man, 
you don't need another book. You need to become a volunteer in the Knight Center for the Homeless of Munich. You need to help cook. You need to help serve. You need to muck out trays and wash and dry dishes. And when you meet the people who are doing that every day, you will meet God again. Go help the poor. Go help the little ones. Forget about the big ones for a while and focus on the little ones. You'll find God there. Number four, even if you give a cup of water, you do not lose your reward. Every act of kindness counts. It matters. It matters to God. And it matters, of course, to the one for whom you've done such an act of kindness, that we do kind things. There was an article in the paper not long ago. Oldest student in the world dies. This kind of headlines interest me. Oldest student in the world dies. Who was the oldest student in the world? His name was Kimani, lived in Kenya. He was 89. A student? Well, the article went on to say that when Kamani was born, there was no public education in Kenya, none. If you had money, you could go to the very few private schools. Kimana, his family, had no money. So he worked as a herdsman, tended a garden, grew up, married, had children, grandchildren. His wife then had died. He was living in a little one-room mud hut. 2003, Kenya declared education for all children. Education for all children. First day of school, Kamani walked two and a half miles with a cane, walked into a classroom, said he was there for school. Teacher said, you're too old, go away. He said, I want to learn how to read the Bible. She said, you're too old, go away. This is for six-year-olds. So he walked home. Next morning, he got up with a cane, walked two and a half miles, went to a different classroom. Teacher said, you're too old. This is for six-year-olds, go away. He went home. Next day, he got up, walked two and a half miles with a cane, went to a third teacher, said, I want to learn how to read the Bible. And she said, take that fourth chair. At the end of the year, he was promoted to second grade. At the end of the year, he was promoted to third grade. At the end of the year, he was promoted to fourth grade. At the end of the year, he would have been promoted to fifth grade. He was diagnosed with cancer. There is no MD Anderson Hospital in Kenya. There is no Sloan Kettering of New York in Kenya. It was a long and slow and painful death. At 89, on the day he died, in a little one-room mud hut, he reached for his Bible and opened it and read the words British missionaries had taught him almost 90 years before. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life.